Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. This text, as we're in in the Gospel of John, we didn't read the text because I'm actually going to go through the text today. It's a a lot of text, and it's a lot of information, and it's one of those those texts that just kind of need to be explained and not necessarily applied in a lot of ways. And so I know if you're like, man, I want this one application, you're going to be sorely disappointed today. If you're like, man, I want to have a whole lot of information and let the Holy Spirit work in my heart, this is your day. So enjoy that. it does have some present-day implications, and then because of the transition time where, where Jesus is transitioning to uh, the cross, and this is the last bit of time with his disciples, so there's there's plenty of more application that we're going to hit in the next two chapters before we even get to chapter 17, um, ultimately culminating on the cross and getting there. So, so this text is rich with information, and there are so many different things to take from it. That instead of, uh, instead of trying to be real creative, because you know I'm not, I just decided I would uh, just let the scripture speak for itself and let the spirit do what he needs to do in each of your hearts. And so I hope, I hope that he challenges you, he grows you in a way um, that is beautiful. And to that end, I'm just going to pray again, and, and then we'll dive in. God, it is um, with much timidness I come to your scripture, knowing that uh, your word is powerful, that you are... Um, sharing your truth through us through this word. And so I pray that, that as, as, you, as you allow me to, to share what you've shown me, God, I pray that I would get out of the way and that your spirit would work in the hearts of every person here, regardless of how poorly I may or may not say the things that need to be said today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for your powerful, your powerful infallible word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to read chapter 14 through 15, verses 15 through 31 is where we are, but we're going to read them all out of order. But don't worry, I got slides for you. So if you're like, oh boy, no, I got slides for you so you can see it. So starting in chapter 14, verse 15. Yes, that's in order, I know, but the rest of them won't be. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then down to verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A little bit further in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 24 going on, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And then finishing, um, and we'll stop there. So we see in this over multiple times, he comes back to this, even in regards to a question that's posed to him, he keeps coming back to this idea of, of loving me and keeping my commands. Those who love me keep my commands. And it's this weird kind of dynamic where I just kind of called the section like love and obedience. It's this, it's this, this tying that Jesus does for us. And we'll get into this a little bit more um, next week in John 15 as well. But, but it's this idea that, that mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. 
Duty, duty, like us trying to figure out how to do it and just say, okay, I'm going to obey God because he told me to is not enough motivation to sustain obedience. It might happen for a while, but, but if we're honest, all of us have experienced that. We've experienced this desire to do what God's word asks of us, yet falling short. Ultimately, only love for him can do that. And what's interesting is Jesus says in this, and it seems like here, like he's saying, like, if you love me and you obey my commands, there's some gifts you'll get. And it, I want to really be clear. It's not, it's not if you do these things, you'll receive these things. We don't earn salvation. We don't earn the Holy Spirit. We don't earn the love of the Father. We are given that through Jesus Christ, not a work of our own, but of him himself. And so, but he says, as we obey, and essentially what he's trying to say over and over and over again through here, which in a lot of ways might be slightly frustrating. Again, Jesus um, is God, and he's, in, and he's human, and he's doing these things, but I can't imagine the struggle he's having trying to relate to his disciples this truth. And essentially what he's saying is saying, look, because of your love for me, you will obey me. If you're a parent in here, no parent wants their kid to just obey them regardless of love. I mean, well, maybe, maybe we like that, but you get what I'm saying. Like, most of us want our kids to love us not just obey us. Yet Jesus, over and over and over again in the Gospels, we see all over throughout the Scripture that obedience to God is, is, is sparked by love of God. And we love God because he first loved us. And so this idea of an of a obedience, of a loveless obedience or, or a love without obedience does not compute in the kingdom of God. We don't see that in Scripture. In fact, over and over again, we see verse 16. He says, we, uh, we don't earn the Holy Spirit um, any more than we can earn our salvation. But yet in verse 16, he says, because of your love and your obedience, I will ask the Lord, I will ask the Father to send the Spirit. In verse 23, he says, out of, the love, out of love, the Father and Jesus will come to them and make their home within them. The one who loves Jesus will also be loved by the Father. So what is he saying? He's not saying, please hear me on this. He's not saying, obey and love him, and then he'll love you in return. He's saying it only makes sense for someone who loves someone to obey them. It only makes sense for us to do so. The gifts are not earned. They're always done through love. One scholar says it this way. He says, the gift is an outgrowth of the loving relationship between Jesus and his disciples, not an entitlement earned by the disciple. I think one of the most hypocritical things that we can do as believers, as followers of Jesus, is say we love him, but completely disobey him in things. Say we love him. Say he, he, say he is our treasure, yet hoard our money for ourselves and not be generous. Say that he is, he is the one who has forgiven us of everything, yet hold forgiveness from others. See, to, to love God is going to bring about a willingness to obey and observe all that he commands of us. Again, not out of duty, but out of joy, out of love. What's interesting is uh, in the scriptures, Jesus, knowing that the desire for his disciples to keep his obe obey his commands and to love him will struggle. In fact, one of the things that we get to kind of look into the lens of is if you've ever seen a parent saying goodbye to their kid or maybe down in the classroom when you're saying goodbye to your kid and they're a little nervous about like, wait, you're leaving. This is what Jesus is doing with these 11. He's trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm leaving, yes, and Peter's going to deny me. And they're, they're, they're starting to feel a little bit of like fear and dissonance and like, what's coming? And he's trying to help them understand. And one of the things that he shows me, he says, look, 
your love and your obedience will, will, will guarantee something that you can't compute or understand right now, but I'm sending you someone that will help you, that will empower you, that will embolden you, that will give you the ability to love me and keep my commands. Jesus knew that the requirement of love and keeping his commands would necessitate the resource of a divine, of divine proportions. And so he prayed for his followers to have another resource. I think this scholar kind of says this section really well. He says, the idea is that the ongoing relationship between Jesus and his disciples is characterized by obedience on their part and thus is logically conditioned by it. They love and obey Jesus, and he loves them in exactly the same way that he loves and obeys his Father, and the Father loves him. Moreover, as the Father in function of his love for the Son shows him all things, so the Son in function of his love for his disciples says, I will show myself to you. The groundwork is being laid for the oneness between Jesus and his disciples that mirrors the oneness between Jesus and his heavenly Father, a theme developed in chapter 17. Jesus is trying to show them, look, the relationship that we have, as as wonderful as the relationship is that you've had with me for these last three years, it's about to get extremely better because where I'm going, you cannot follow yet, but when I come on the other side of the cross, you will have power. You will have relationship. The the kingdom of God will be inaugurated. I will be glorified. And this is what John has been building to always, is the, is the point of Jesus' glorification. And so, so this section, this, this whole, like, I'm the truth in the way that begins in chapter 14, and, and what moves on to this idea of the, of the true vine, is this, there's this connection of those that believe in Jesus, believe because of love, and that love compels action, obedience, and that obedience and love. And so what he's saying is, since you love me, since you're obedient, I will call the Father, and ask him to send another to help you do the very things that would mean that you are a part of my kingdom. And so in all of these verses, what he's saying is ultimately this, but if you think about it, verse 31, he says it this way. He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So in all of these obedience acts and all of these love things, we're just to model Jesus. Jesus says, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. I obey what God has asked of me. And in doing so, the world knows that I love my Father because of the obedience I show to the Father. Therefore, just model that. Do what I ask of you so the world may know that you love me. All Jesus is trying to get them to understand is that he's inviting them into relationship with God in a way that they didn't understand completely in a way that, that God is going to dwell in them and with them, and that's where we'll get to in a second, and that, that they will have a drastically different relationship with God because it's now going to be even more personal because God sent Jesus to them, and Jesus will send the Spirit to them. So he's trying to get them to understand this over and over again because uh, one scholar says it this way. He says, because love is a mark of the relationship of the Father to the Son, it also means that a loving relationship of the believer to the son naturally implies a loving relationship of the believer with the father. Do you see how this works? It's it's one in the same. Similarly, as the son served and obeyed the father, the disciple's life is expected to be one of service and obedience to the son, whose commands, in turn, are from the father. Jesus is wrapping his disciples up into 
the oneness with the Father and saying it all comes through this. You want to obey God, you need to be nearer, closer, more relationship with Jesus. And you get there through Jesus. And when you struggle, you realize that he has given you the spirit, which we'll get to in a second. So Jesus is, is in this fine, interesting spot, trying to communicate to them what he's asking of them and what it means, but also telling them that I'm asking these things of you, but know that I'm also giving you things. I'm drawing you near to the Father. I'm giving you the Spirit. I'm showing you the Father's love. I'm giving you the Father's love. All of these things are coming in a life marked by believers. And let's, I'll say it this way, and we'll move on. Let's be, let's be honest. If, if you profess the name of Jesus Christ and blatantly disregard Scripture, you know in your heart you're not following the God that you claim you follow. That, that's, a, that's something we all recognize. Now, we will struggle with this. We will wrestle with this. But when we blatantly disregard, we say, I don't care because I want comfort or I want something else or I want my life to be more about myself. All we're saying is that this love relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ isn't enough. That's essentially what you're saying. And then Jesus goes on. And this section in, in verses 18 through 20, I'll read it real quickly. He says this. He says, um, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so he's going, hey, this is how it's gonna, we're going to know this. Now, the reason why this section is really confusing is because before this, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. After this, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But then he adds this idea of yet a little while. There's a specific time period where the disciples will see him. In fact, we see that Judas, not Iscariot, is confused by this. How will we see you, but the world won't see you? This doesn't make sense. And so scholars are all over the board. Is Jesus talking about the second coming of himself? Is he talking about the resurrection? Is he talking about sending the Spirit? And I think in all honesty, like, yes, all of those. Like, but I think he's also, what we don't understand is that Jesus is trying to, he's trying to comfort his disciples, I think it's important for us to just at least see that for a moment. Like Jesus is, he's, he's wired and he's, he's in place and he's, he's directly focused on the fact that his glorification is coming through the cross. Like he is fully aware of what's ahead of him. And yet he's stopping, he's pausing, and he's looking at his disciples and saying, I will not leave you as orphans. I care about you. It's almost like he's saying it this way. I will not leave you to be as orphans. I will presence myself to you. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. In, in secular Greek, the word orphans um, usually uh, meant children deprived of parents, but it could also be a child that was stripped of only one parent or a, uh, a student that was stripped of their master or, or rabbi. And so he's speaking directly to his disciples saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he comes to them in the resurrection they will see him again. And I think that's where they're like, what do you mean you'll see him, but, but the world won't? Because, and we'll get there in a second. But he, he says, no, you'll see me in this way. When Jesus shows up, he shows up to his disciples or those who believe in the resurrection. But also, you'll see me and I will be with you. Like the, greatest, the great commandment, I am with you always. I live. Where I'm going, I will not end there. I will come to you. Beginning of chapter 14, he talked about how I'm going to a place to prepare a place for you, a dwelling place for you, a home for you, and I will come 
back to you. And that's actually, he's talking about the second coming here. I think he just might be, it's, it's, that's true, but I think he might just be encouraging, like, I'm going to see you again. Thomas, you're going to doubt, but you're going to be able to see me. I'm going to have a meal with you. And this is what he's saying. So the resurrection was the event that divided the disciples. It's time to wake up. Um, divided the disciples from the world. For while the world continued in their blindness, the disciples were able at that point to see him. And so what is he, what is he saying? He's saying, look, the, the world won't see me because, because the world is incapable of seeing me because they don't have the spirit of God in them. They don't have this. The, the coming of Jesus to resurrection will mean more than a mere return of Jesus to life. Um, one scholar says it this way. It says, his aim is to establish the sort of intimacy and unity he has promised throughout the discourse. The oneness he enjoys with the Father parallels the oneness the disciples will joy, enjoy with him. Thus, the resurrection will breathe the bridge that will inaugurate the union Jesus wants with them. See, Judas, he hears this. And again, in their mind, the disciples uh, continually miss continually miss this over and over again. They keep missing the truth of what Jesus is saying. You can tell that they obviously must feel it in some way because of the way that Jesus is speaking to them. There's a little bit of cognitive dissonance or some fear or some anxiety going. And they keep, even in their questioning, you can tell that they're trying to grab onto, what does this, what does this mean? And Judas asked this question in verse 22. Again, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? How will you make yourself known to us but not the world? That's the word manifest. How will you appear? How will you show us who you are, but not the world? What Judas is wrestling with is this idea, if he is the Messiah, then obviously he's going to come in and crush. And everyone, the world will know, every knee will bow. He's thinking of the second coming. He's not aware that that the first is is, is the inauguration of it. It's the beginning. It's the here, but the not yet. And so Judas is is trying to wrap his mind about, like, what do you mean? Like, where you're going and then you're coming back. Like, are you going to hide from everyone? Because that doesn't seem like the Messiah King. The Messiah King doesn't hide. He presents himself. He walks down the road and says, I have conquered, and, and there's a parade for him, and everyone sees what he has done. How, how could you hide? And that's, that's the question they keep having. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. Why would, you, why, would you, why would the world not see you? And Jesus is just is just trying to show them that the reason why they will see him is because they have been given eyes to do so, which will come through the Spirit of God indwelling in them. This is what he's saying. He's saying this over and over again. And then he, he connects this in, in verse 28, trying to, um, trying to help them understand this. He says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. And he's like, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So Jesus is saying, look, if you, if you truly love me and you knew where I was going, you'd be so excited for me. And this isn't a, this isn't a knock on them. This isn't, a, this isn't a, a jab at them, but I think this is a help, trying to help them understand that, that, that they don't see the full picture that they don't understand what's going on here because if they knew that he was ultimately going back to where he belonged, to his, his original glory, the, 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 the very place that God was supposed to be, they would rejoice because he's back to the origin. And in doing so, in what he's doing, he's saying, by me doing this very thing, I'm sending you gifts. 
I'm sending you these things. The Father's love is going to be perfected in you. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. He also tells them here, he says, I'm not going to talk about these things anymore, but then he goes on and talks about a bunch of other things. So this isn't a, hey, I'm ending my conversation with you, but he's like, hey, we're going to move on from this. And he says, the ruler of the world is coming. We, we, this is where Judas is coming to arrest him. He's on his way there. He's not talking about Judas being the ruler of the world. He's saying Judas is under the dominion of Satan, the ruler of this world. But then he says, he has no claim on me. It's important. That's a Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew idiom that's really important. It means he has zero. It means he has zero, um, in a legal sense, nothing over Jesus. He has no control, can't do anything. In fact, Jesus is not of this world, as John 8, 23 says, right? The ruler has no power over me. No power. In fact, um, one scholar said this, and I loved it. He said, ironically, the very rebellion and sinful self-centeredness that condemns the world, that makes the world the world, is overthrown by the obedience and self-sacrificing love of the Son, who thereby not only displays what a proper relation to God consists in, but is vindicated and wins release and redemption for those the Father has given to them. He says, look, we're not going to talk about this. This is going to happen. And then in verse 29, he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm saying these things. I'm telling you these things so that when it happens, it'll help shore up your belief. I'm telling you these things so that that when it happens, loving and obedience will be so much easier because you know it's true. He's already said, I'm the truth. He's giving them absolutely everything he can to try and tell them exactly what's happening, and they just can't see it. Another section that that some people have tried to to spin out of uh, craziness is the idea that um, verse 28, it says, for... Father, uh, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. This is a, a statement that many have tried to say that is Jesus is not fully God. Um, I would encourage you to go back and just read John 1, and, and you can go and listen to the scriptures that we talked about there. That is not what's happening here. Jesus is showing, um, he's showing his, his, his value of submission and obedience to God through his love. It's not an inferiority thing. In fact, Philippians 2, 5 through 6 says it this way, encouraging us, all of Philippians 2 is beautiful, I'd encourage you to read it, but he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this is the mind of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's displaying immense humility in his posture here. John isn't flipping and all of a sudden saying, okay, Jesus is less than or not. He's saying, no, Jesus is, is, is sent by God. And then what's interesting is we get to the Holy Spirit, who is God. He says the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. And all of them work in the name of. The, Jesus works in the name of God. The Holy Spirit works in the name of Jesus. They're, they're, they're all together. It's a very beautiful, powerful, wonderful thing. Have this mind among yourselves. So Jesus is here trying to comfort his disciples. And then he brings in um, something he, he's mentioned and talked about already in the Gospels, but he's going to spend more time talking about uh, throughout the rest of this book, and that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, uh, something that's, I think, worth noting, and this is just a, a side fun fact for you, is the Trinitarian implications in verses 25 and 26 are inescapable. Okay, I know that Trinity is not a word that is in the Bible. We have, that's a systematic word that we put to kind of define that which we see, but he says the Father will send the Spirit in the name of Jesus. We see it the same way in the, in the, in the baptism of Jesus, right? Father speaking, Jesus being baptized, the, the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. So, so it's a very clear thing. This is, uh, 
this is a, a, a revelation kind of promised by Jesus is in the fact that the, the effort of God himself, I'm sorry, this spiritual revelation promised by Jesus is in fact the effort of God himself in every dimension working for our benefit. Every dimension of him working. The spirit is to be sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. It's a remarkable de- declaration which binds the spirit close in Jesus because over and over and over again in this gospel, what do we see? Jesus is represented as the one sent by God having his origin of God, in God, a mission from God, and an authority from God, that the Spirit is sent by the Father carries similar implications. Jesus affirms this when he says he comes in the name of his Father as his representative. The Spirit now, however, is sent in the name of Jesus and comes as his representative. So here we see this working of the Holy Spirit. And, I, and I'll, I'll confess as a church, we spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit and the gifts and stuff in, in 1 Corinthians. If you want to go back and look at, listen to that, you're welcome to. But, but the Holy Spirit is one of, those, one of those things that I think in the church they get, we get a little like, nervous about. Because we've seen, it, we've seen him exploited in many ways. We've seen a lot of really in, like, not great outworkings of what the Spirit could or couldn't do. We've, seen, we've also seen, but at the same point, we've experienced things that were like, there's no way to explain that. <laughs> other than God is doing something. And so what I wanted to do out of this text, and the reason why I jumped around, because we see the loving obedience in, in there, we see the, the, the sovereignty of God and him comforting his disciples, but ultimately the thing that he brings that, that, that puts kind of the, the comfort in the basket for us to understand how this works is, is all that he talks about the Holy Spirit here. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, just... Something worth noting, like there are many different ways and things that need to be talked about the Holy Spirit. We're only going to talk about the ones that are true to this text right here. We will hit more of them in chapter 16 and some other spots as we go forward. But um, the first thing that, that has to be said, and this is going to kind of seem nerdy, but it's important because the word that is used, that's translated in ESV here as helper, is actually not a great definition. It's not a great word. So I want to, I want to nerd out with you guys for a second here. If you go to, we'll read verse 16 here. Um, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Uh, Down to verse 25, uh, we talked about this earlier. It says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Uh, the reason why this is difficult is that the word is, it's a, um, it's a passive form of an adjective in a Greek word. And this word itself, it means like if you were to take it, the kind of the, means to come alongside but it can be translated and it's used all over in Greek in many different ways as as advocate, as comforter, as helper, as counselor, exhorter, intercessor, encourager, or attorney. Uh, Really, um, a lot of the scholars just kind of want to just say paraclete. That's the, the transliterated Greek word that we can use for the Holy Spirit. And the reason why is helper can be misleading because helper denotes this idea, at least to us, as someone that we are in charge of. 
Counselor can be difficult because in, in ours, counselors, is we, we have counseling situations. And so really probably the safest way to understand this is something that many of us aren't comfortable with. I know some in here are or don't understand as well, is this idea of, of like a representative, a legal representative, but not as a defense, but actually as, an, as, a, as a prosecutor. He's not defending us here. He's, defend, he's, he's attacking the world in that way. It's more of an offensive um, prosecutor's role on behalf of God and the Christian witness as over against the disobedience in the world. Now, we see this word be used of Jesus, and this is why this is difficult, because Jesus, by the author, by John himself, is used, he's called a paraclete in 1 John 2. We have, even when we see him, we have an advocate who is Jesus Christ. Advocate, that's that word again. And so Jesus says here, and this is one of those things that you don't pick up unless you look into the language a little bit more. He says, I send you another now, there are two Greek words for another. That's very important. Very, very important. The first one is another of the exact same kind. And there's another Greek word that means something completely different in nature. And the another here is of the same kind. And so what Jesus is saying, he's not speaking of himself here. He's saying, I send you another, meaning I have been your advocate. I have been your teacher. I have been your encourager. I am your comforter. All those things are happening. But when, when after the resurrection, I am going to send, I'm asking the Lord to send another paraclete, another advocate, another encourager, another legal counsel, another for you. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He calls the Holy Spirit another. This means that the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit will be a continuation of the work of Jesus during the disciples' lifetime. This also means for us that the paraclete has been sent to us as well, not just these disciples. This is, this is really important because a lot of um, different systematic theologies work their way out of this. This is not to say that there is a salvation with Jesus and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will show up at some point with a second salvation. No, in salvation, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, followers of Jesus that are sitting in this room, when you submit your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And that's what he says here. He goes on and says this. In fact, I'm not just making that up, I promise. But he also calls him the Spirit of truth. He communicates the truth about God, which in essence is God's work in Christ. It's, it's such a beautiful relationship. It's, it's so important that we get this because when we get to John 17 and we say, we see Jesus praying that we would be one like he and the Father are one, this is showing us just how intermingled, like we it's impossible to separate. It's absolutely beautiful and how they, they work together and how, how God is glorified in the whole relationship, but each of them working out the beauty of who God is while giving us the ability to glorify him in our actions, in our words, in our days. Guys, this is a beautiful thing. Jesus' promise to his disciples was that when he departed, the spirit of truth would come to abide in them, to remain in them. And then he goes into John 15 and says, those who abide in me, the true vine. It's, 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 it's beautiful. So there are very, um, there are a few really powerful applications of this text for us today. Um, we obey because he loved us and we love, because we are loved and we love, and we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit that is promised to those who are in Christ, which he gives us, um, which gives us a few promises of the Holy Spirit that are 
many more in the scriptures, like many, like I had 38 of them, and I was like, I'm not going to go through all those, so we'll, we'll cover those later in a little bit in 16. Um, but there's three that I wanted to talk about that we see in the scripture today. And, and the first one I think is, is, is important for us to understand, we've already started talking about, is that he will dwell in us. We see that in verse 17. Verse 17 says it this way. It says, says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So the world can't have the spirit because it doesn't know him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And this is a, a really powerful thing. One of the repeated statements over and over again in the Old Testament was this grace-filled theme that Yahweh would be Israel's God and that, and that, that Israel would be his people. We see that in Ezekiel 34 and many other places. But the, this theme was connected to the idea that God would dwell with them. And we see God dwelling with them over and over again, portrayed um, for them realistically in the tabernacle, which, co- which contained the mercy seat and, and traveled with the people during the exodus. But then later we see that the, the fixed temple is the place with which God is there. And then think about this, John in the prologue, in the very beginning of this of this. This gospel, what does he say in chapter one? He says, Jesus has come in the incarnation. He has tabernacled. He has tented with us. He is dwelling with us. Second Corinthians 6, 16 talks about it this way. Paul says, what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they, will be, they shall be my people, quoting Leviticus and, and Exodus. Saying that the, the dwelling place, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the tabernacle of God, those who are in Christ. This theme of dwelling places finds its eschatological or end times conclusion with the idea of dwelling in his kingdom. We see this in Revelations 21, 3. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So the first truth that we have to take from the scripture is that when we surrender ourselves to Jesus, at this point, the disciples haven't been there yet. They're still with Jesus. They haven't experienced this moment yet. But we, thousands of years later, when we, when we submit our lives to Jesus, when he has opened our heart and we give ourselves to him, then we, in a beautiful and joyful way, become a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit of God to work in us and through us for his glory, helping us to do the very things that God has asked us to do. So he dwells in us. Let us live as one who surrenders to the Spirit, as one who keeps in step with the Spirit like we see all over in the New Testament. Walk by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, these are things that we should as surrendered followers of Jesus be seen coming out of us and not have an explanation for it. Like, it wasn't my willpower that did that. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The second thing that we see, which I think is really beautiful for the disciples, specifically in this context, but also really powerful for us, which is that he teaches us about Jesus and he helps us to remember. This is, this is what's so incredible. We see this in verse 26. He says, he says, Um, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, what do we see after Jesus' resurrection, after they understand things? All of a sudden, things are called to light for them, right? They're like, do you remember when he was cleansing the temple? 
Do you remember what he said on the road? Like, do, like all these different things. Like, do you remember? Do you remember? Like, all of a sudden, the scriptures were opened up to him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is helping them remember. Now, hear this. Please hear this, church. That means the same for us. He's, he's going to help us remember who Jesus is. Help us remember what Jesus expects of us and calls us to. He's going to help us see the working of God. One of the Holy Spirit's principal tasks after Jesus is glorified is to remind the disciples of Jesus' teaching and in the new situation after the resurrection to help them grasp its significance and to teach what it meant. That means for us we can see the significance in what Jesus is teaching, not because we're smart, because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and giving us the, the ability to understand that which is of God. 1 John 2, 20 says this, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Because why? The Holy One, the paraclete, the, the Holy Spirit. First uh, Corinthians 2, 10, these things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This means if you're smart, no matter how smart you are, you get no claim on it. It's the Holy Spirit doing it. So, so the idea of an arrogant Christian is completely ridiculous. The idea of a scholar that is, that is willing to be proud in their knowledge is a fool. Yes, search the scriptures. Yes, study God's word. Yes, bring in as much as you can and learn this. But know that whatever you grasp, you grasp because the Holy Spirit alone gives you the ability to do so. Knowledge without the Holy Spirit is just going to puff up and make you arrogant. Knowledge to be smarter is just going to make you a pious Pharisee. This is why it is so foolish for us to have immense truth and then not let our life live true to that truth. This is where love and obedience comes together, if you think about it. If everything that I know about Jesus or God is because the Holy Spirit has given it to me, and the Holy Spirit is very clear about how we are to live our lives for God and Jesus, then not living my life for God and Jesus is, is just completely astronomical. So if you know that God says that your life is his, that means that your money is his, your time is his, if you know that cognitively, the Holy Spirit has given you that, then guess what? The Holy Spirit has given you the strength to walk that out, to be ridiculously generous people, not fearful of what you may or may not have in your future, to be people that are willing to, to, to have their, their complete schedule disrupted because God is working at you to be attuned to listening to what God is saying to you through his Spirit, pointing you back to the truth that he has given us in his infallible, beautiful words in the Scripture. And I think this is probably one of the best promises those disciples got in that moment. I mean, they're all their questions like, wait, how are you going to reveal yourself? Philip before, it's like, wait, 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 what? Wait, no, 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 hold on a second. What are you saying? Like, they, you can see they're trying to grasp it. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. After, after the resurrection, the Spirit will come and he will help you remember everything. He will give you all that wisdom. He will help you know how we're supposed to move, how we're supposed to walk. He will do it. Just walk in step with him. Surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit. Let, let the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the God who indwells in you, let him live out his purposes to bring more glory to God the Father through you. 
The third promise, and I think this is probably one that we all need today, although I believe it was very, very beneficial for them as well in this time, is in verse 27. Uh, he says, I leave you with my peace. Peace I leave you with. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you remember, he, he starts this chapter, let not your hearts be troubled. And we talked about last week, we talked about the idea that there's a way for our hearts not to be troubled. To remember our way, our truth, and our life is in Jesus Christ. And here he's saying, look, hey, remember our way. Who will help us remember? The Holy Spirit will help us remember. And peace I leave you with. Now, to us, in this day and age where we're not experiencing any massive in-front-of-us wars, although we can argue all sorts of things about that, um, to them... They're a people occupied by Rome. And, and to them, their idea of peace was that Jesus would come, the Messiah would come and crush Rome and bring about peace. He said, no, 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 I'm not doing that yet. I'm inaugurating this. I'm bringing peace in a different way. I'm indwelling me in you. You want peace? You want comfort? Take joy in knowing that pa patience, peace, and gentleness and kindness, they dwell in you. Not by anything you do. 2 Timothy 1.7 says it this way, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Jesus' gift of shalom, this peace word, is different than the world's idea of peace. That's a big thing for us to understand. This peace secures composure in the midst of trouble, and it dissolves fear. How are we doing, church, on our peace? As we talk about this Advent season and, and moving forward and the, and the idea of being joyful, well, it's almost impossible to be joyful if we don't have the peace of Jesus in us because this world is full of reasons not to be joyful. This is the peace which guards our hearts and our minds against the invasion of anxiety that Philippians 4, 7 talks about. It rules the hearts of God's people to maintain unity amongst them as Colossians 3.15 talks about. Guys, this peace is not the way the world gives peace. Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit brings us peace so we can wake up and we can have peace about our future because we know that God is in control of our future. We can have peace about the turmoil and the struggles and the pain and the loss because we know that ultimately God is good regardless of what we see in front of us. We can have peace because the Holy Spirit is actively in those that are following Jesus, reminding us of who Jesus is. Not who he was, who he is alive today. Advocating for us in the throne room of God, praying for you right now. Jesus is praying for you individually right now. Our minds can't even put that together, let alone the idea of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in every believer in the world. But yet, Romans 5.1 says it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The best peace we could ever hope for is peace with the God who created us. And Jesus says, not only do you have peace with the God who created you, but you have my peace in you. And you can live in peace. So the Holy Spirit promises, you see the promises through the scripture that the Holy Spirit will indwell us. In dwelling us, he recalls and helps us remember all that Jesus has done and will do and is going to do and all the things that he is doing right now in us. 
And then ultimately we can walk as believers regardless of how horrible our home situation is, our life is, how difficult the world is, how disgusting the things happen. We can walk with the peace of Jesus because he is indwelling in us. And we can hope not as the world hopes. We can, we can have peace not as the world would give peace. It's not some fake smile. We can walk around completely, we can walk in here completely broken knowing that the peace of Jesus still surpasses our brokenness. We don't need to fake it. One scholar says it this way. He says, The peace in Jesus' teaching is to be as characteristic of the dawning kingdom as the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus bequeaths both, thus fully providing all that is necessary to meet his disciples' fear. You see in your lives today the Holy Spirit at work in and through you. Do you see him working in and through you? Because that's how this starts. If we're, if we're going to be obedient and love God, that's going to be an outworking of the Holy Spirit in us. Do you see him working in you? Do you see his truth transcend from just head knowledge into action? When you're, when you're convicted by the words of God in his scripture, do you see yourself walking those out, staying in step with them, not out of some duty, but out of love? Do you remember all the teachings of Jesus? When you are brought to a moment of remembering Jesus, praise God that the Spirit is working in you. If you are overcome by peace, that isn't that I get a, a, a Christmas break coming and that's where I'll have peace finally. Or when Christmas is over, I'll finally experience peace because of the holidays, you know, right? No, if you experience a peace, that is a gift from God. That is an outworking of the Spirit of God in you. He is working to bring about peace. Do you have that peace? A peace that could only come from the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. We're going to move to a time of communion. And I, I think it's, it's kind of interesting, and in a second I'll give you a chance to go grab the elements, but um, I think it's interesting if, if one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit is to help us remember what Jesus has done in his teachings, one of the most beautiful things about the Lord's Supper is that we are to remember what Jesus has done and who he is. And so it's, a, it's an outworking of the Holy Spirit in a really beautiful way if you think about it. Like we're, we're, we're calling on, we're asking the Holy Spirit to help us remember who Jesus is, what his death, burial, and resurrection means for us, what he's doing in us currently, and ultimately that he will come again to partake of the feast together. And so um, as followers of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, let us rid ourselves of anything that gets in the way of that. If, you're, if, you are, if you are carrying unforgiveness or, or bitterness or you have anger that has not been settled or at peace with another believer, then I encourage you, go settle that. Settle that right now. Like, pick up the phone, grab someone else. Who cares if everyone's going, oh, are they mad at each other? No, don't worry about that. Get prayer in the prayer room, whatever you need. Rid ourselves of this. Why? Because we love God and, and loving God calls us to obedience and obedience would be forgiving just as he has forgiven us. So if you're carrying around that, then, then, then rid yourselves of it. And come to the table to remember by the Holy Spirit all that Jesus has done for us and is doing in us and will do in his second coming. That's what communion is. The band's going to come up, and we will, um, we, will, we will sing a song. I'm going to pray here in a second. You're welcome to go grab the elements, and then I'll come back up here and lead us in the elements. Father, thank you for... Uh, 
Thank you for your word as confusing, as complex as it can be. Thank you for, for helping, um, helping uh, my heart to understand a little bit of what you wanted me to know this week. Lord, I pray that the, the people that are here, that they're listening to this later on or they're, they're present in this room, as they're, as they're hearing this, God, I pray that your spirit would speak to them. Recall that which needs to be recalled. Um, remind them that what needs to be reminded. Uh, do away with anything that I say that gets in the way of what you're trying to do, God. Ultimately, Lord, we, we ask and we, we pray and we plead that you would help us to love and obey you uh, the only way that we can through the power of your Holy Spirit that is indwelling in us. And in doing so, God, I pray that we'd be a people that just show this broken and lost world what peace looks like. Um, it begins in your birth and ultimately is culminated in your resurrection and now indwells in us. We thank you so much for the Holy Spirit and all that he is doing in us and through us and, and um, by us for your glory alone. Thank you for answering that prayer of Jesus to send your spirit to us as another paraclete. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue 